from New York, this is Democracy Now! It's a sad day today, Israeli democracy. Uh, the law uh, will enable this government to pass any law that they would like to uh, appoint any person uh, to a position, uh, regardless of uh, their skills or background. Uh, and we're going to fight back. Mass protests are continuing in Israel after lawmakers approved a divisive bill to gut the power of the Supreme Court. We'll speak to two Israeli journalists who've criticized both Benjamin Netanyahu's government for pushing the judicial reform, as well as the mass protest movement for not advocating for Palestinian rights as well. Then to the U.S., the fight for reproductive rights. Attorneys generals are demanding access to people's private medical records to evaluate whether someone has had an abortion out of their states. This is a disgusting overreach of government authority designed only to terrorize and intimidate patients seeking legal health care. We'll go to Kentucky to speak with Planned Parenthood. Then we'll talk to a leading Kurdish-American activist who just walked from Washington, D.C. to the United Nations to rally support for Kurdish rights. My name is Connie Zulam. I am a Kurd, one out of 50 million stateless ones in the world. I am also one of the organizers of our long walk for freedom. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A new study finds this month's record-shattering global heat wave would not have been possible without the continuing buildup of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere due to human activity. Scientists at World Weather Attribution say a rapid analysis of weather data taken this month across China, southern Europe and the American Southwest show high levels of carbon dioxide and other gases help drive temperatures by as much as four and a half degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. The researchers warn the past 20 days have likely been the hottest such stretch in more than 100,000 years. This comes as new research finds sea ice around Antarctica is in sharp decline and may never recover. Data from the University of Maine's Climate Change Institute show almost 2 million square kilometers less sea ice has accumulated so far during the Southern Hemisphere's winter compared to any previous year. In Sweden, climate activist Greta Thunberg was arrested Monday as she joined a nonviolent civil disobedience protest outside an oil terminal in the southern city of Malmö. Thunberg's arrest came just hours after she was fined by a Swedish court for disobeying police during a protest at the same oil terminal in June. She called her repeated protests an act of self-defense against a rapidly worsening climate catastrophe. Right now, we don't have any laws that holds the carbon in the ground. We don't have any laws that long-term protect us against the self-destructing greed that we have let in full control over the world. Um, the laws have to be changed. We know that we cannot uh, save the world by playing by the rules, because the rules have to be changed. 
Algeria says at least 34 people have been killed and thousands more evacuated as nearly 100 wildfires burn across 16 provinces. The fires were fueled by extreme heat in North Africa, which has added to the misery of migrants attempting to cross the Mediterranean to apply for asylum in Europe. In Tunisia, asylum seekers, mostly from sub-Saharan Africa, forced to live in makeshift tent camps, are languishing under a sweltering heat wave, with temperatures reaching 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Meanwhile, dozens of migrants, who were rounded up by Tunisian authorities and stranded in a desolate militarized area in the Tunisian border with Libya, have described harrowing conditions in the heat wave. Many have been stuck there for at least two weeks without any food, fresh drinking water or shelter from the rising temperatures. This is an asylum seeker from Nigeria. No food, no water. They materialize us here. They brutalize us. There are snakes here. Nowhere to sleep, nothing to eat. We are begging on the new end to please come to our aid. We are suffering here brutally. Look at our skin have been infected with different infections. No treatment, no food. They have been maltreating us maliciously, which is very wrong. The Biden administration filed a lawsuit Monday against Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott over the state's installation of barrels wrapped in razor wire in the Rio Grande as an attempt to block asylum seekers from crossing the river. The suit comes after Abbott ignored a request from the Justice Department to remove the floating barrels and vowed to fight in court to keep them in place. Dozens of migrants, including children, have suffered severe injuries and lacerations after being cut by the razor wire, which is often underwater and not visible. The blistering heat wave in Texas has also been deadly for migrants crossing through the region. A whistleblower recently revealed Texas border officials were ordered to deny migrants drinking water, even in the brutal heat. Israeli lawmakers have approved a highly contested bill to gut the power of the Supreme Court by preventing it from blocking government decisions it deems unreasonable. The bill is part of a broader set of judicial reforms pushed by the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that have sparked months of unprecedented protests. Ahead of Monday's vote, opposition lawmakers erupted in jeers and shouts of shame before storming out of the Knesset, leaving the far-right majority, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, to pass the bill on a vote of 64 to 0. Later in the day, Netanyahu defended the legislation in the nationally televised address. Today we carried out the required democratic move. The move was aimed at restoring a degree of balance between the authorities, which was here for 50 years. Netanyahu had just come out of the hospital, where he had a pacemaker implanted. Massive protests against the judicial reforms are continuing in Tel Aviv, where on Monday police fired water cannons and noxious chemical known as skunk at protesters. It's believed to be the first time Israeli police have deployed the chemical agent against Israeli citizens. Since 2008, Israel's repeatedly deployed skunk against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. Meanwhile, Israel's military says it shot and killed three Palestinians in the West Bank city of Nablus. Seventeen Palestinians were also arrested in overnight raids. After headlines, we'll go to Israel for the latest. 
In Sudan, army officials Monday rejected a proposal from Kenya to send East African peacekeepers, as other regional and international mediation efforts to end the violence have also failed. Meanwhile, fighting between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces continued to escalate as the war marked 100 days on Sunday. In Russia, Kremlin officials say a Ukrainian drone attack Monday struck two buildings near the defense ministry's main headquarters in Moscow. This followed a Ukrainian drone attack on Saturday that hit an ammunition depot in the Russian annexed territory of Crimea. In southern Ukraine, Russian drones struck a town on the Danube River in southern Ukraine, destroying a grain hangar. The drones struck less than 1,000 feet from Ukraine's border with Romania, a NATO member nation that the U.S. and others in the military alliance have vowed to defend. The attack suggests the Kremlin's targeting sites that provide an alternative route for Ukraine to export food and fertilizer after Russia pulled out of a deal allowing Ukraine to ship its grain across the Black Sea. This follows attacks Sunday on the Ukrainian Black Sea port city of Odessa that killed one person and injured 19 and damaged an Orthodox cathedral that's listed as a World Heritage Site. This is a survivor of the assault. My child was enrolled here. We regularly attended the cathedral's services. The priests here are wonderful. People need to stop being so cruel. Guatemalan police raided the offices of the progressive Samia party on Friday as Samia's presidential candidate, Bernardo Arevalo, blasted the attorney general's office for the illegal and spurious action and political persecution, they said. Ever since placing second in June's first round of the election, the anti-corruption Samia party and Bernardo Arevalo have been targeted by presidential frontrunner, former First Lady Sandra Torres and her allies, who are backed by Guatemala business and political elites. The election's second round between Torres and Arevalo is scheduled for August 20th. Back in the United States, a truck driver from Arkansas who was filmed assaulting a police officer during the January 6, 2021, insurrection in the Capitol, was sentenced Monday to 52 months in federal prison. Video of the incident shows Peter Steger watched as rioters attacked a police line and dragged Metropolitan Police Department officer Blake Miller into the crowd, where Steger repeatedly beat him with a flagpole. Monday's sentencing came amid signs that special counsel Jack Smith will soon announce another indictment against former President Donald Trump over Trump's role in inciting the insurrection as he attempted to remain in power following his November 2020 election loss. And President Biden's designated a national monument across three locations in Illinois and Mississippi, honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. On August 28, 1955, a white mob dragged Emmett Till from his great uncle's home in Money, Mississippi, and lynched him. The 14-year-old African-American boy had traveled that summer to the segregated South from his home in Chicago. 
Today would have been Emmett Till's 82nd birthday. Over the weekend, residents of Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood celebrated the occasion with an ice cream social outside his childhood home. And they paid homage to Till at the Roberts Temple Church of Christ, which has just been designated a national monument. It was inside the church that Till's brutally beaten and disfigured body was displayed in an open casket at his funeral. This is Chicago resident Quintella Bounds. I want to say it's a blessing because it, so often they want to erase the events that happened to African-Americans. But you can't erase it if it's a landmark. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I am Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, mass protests are continuing in Israel after lawmakers passed a highly contested bill that would gut the power of the Supreme Court by preventing it from blocking government decisions it deems unreasonable. The bill is part of a broader set of judicial reforms pushed by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that has sparked months of unprecedented protests. On Monday, Israeli police fired water cannons at protesters in Tel Aviv. Meanwhile, Israel's medical Association has begun a 24-hour strike to protest the gutting of the judiciary. In addition, more than 10,000 IDF reservists have pledged not to report to duty in an act of protest. The push to weaken the judiciary has been so divisive that former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert says Israel could be entering a civil war. Prior to the vote Monday, Israeli opposition leader and former Prime Minister Yair Lapid spoke in the Knesset. We are on our way to a disaster. If you vote in for this bill today, you bring the end of the people's army. You strengthen Israel's enemies. You harm the state of Israel's security. Moments before the vote took place, opposition lawmakers began chanting, shame, shame, as some lawmakers tore up the text of the legislation. After Israeli opposition lawmakers walked out of the Knesset, supporters of the judicial reform passed the measure by a vote of 64 to 0. Later in the day, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who had just been released from the hospital having a pacemaker implanted, gave a pre-recorded address on television. Today, we carried out the required democratic move. The move was aimed at restoring a degree of balance between the authorities, which was here for 50 years. We passed the Bill of Reasonableness so that the elected government could lead the policy in accordance with the decision of the majority of the country's citizens. Palestinian leaders have criticized both Netanyahu's government for gutting the judiciary, as well as the massive protest movement for not speaking up for Palestinian rights. Monday's vote came as Israel continues its deadly crackdown in the West Bank. Earlier today, Israeli forces killed three Palestinian men in Nabla. Seventeen Palestinians were also arrested in overnight raids. 
In related news, the American Anthropological Association has voted to boycott Israeli academic institutions in a major victory for the Palestinian-led boycott, divestment and sanctions BDS movement. We're joined now by two Israeli journalists in Tel Aviv. Hagai Matar is executive director of 972, Advancement of Citizen Journalism, the nonprofit that publishes 972 magazine. Matar is a conscientious objector who refused to serve in the Israeli army. Gidon Levy is also with us. He's a columnist for the newspaper Haaretz and a member of its editorial board. One of his recent pieces is headlined, Israeli protest against the judicial coup has militaristic characteristics. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! I want to start with Hagai Matar. You are a conscientious objector. Um, uh, you are a, a writer for uh, 972 magazine, the executive director of 972. Can you respond to what happened in the Knesset um, after the opposition walked out? It was— um, uh, uh, a vote of, what was it, 64 to 0, uh, for gutting the judiciary, and also these massive protests, including today the um, Health Care Association and the reservists um, saying they won't serve as a result of this legislation. Yes, uh, thank you, Amy, for having me in these very troubling times. Um, basically, that the bill was passed um, shortly before it was passed. Yariv Levin, the Minister of Justice, is one of the champions of this legislation, went on stage in the Knesset to give all the reasons why he thinks um, this measure should be passed. And he gave a list of Supreme Court rulings um, in which he thought the use of reasonableness was unreasonable. Uh, and all these examples, all of them, were connected to the Palestinian struggle. So was the, there, there was an example of the court allowing Palestinian bereaved families to come to a shared ceremony with Israelis uh, uh, to mourn their dead. There was an example of a Palestinian-American citizen who wanted to come in to Israel and was stopped uh, for being a BDS activist, and that was struck down by the court. Now, the Israeli Supreme Court is not an ally to Palestinians. There's green uh, lit already um, dozens of war crimes, but in those very, very few instances where it has put guardrails on occupation and apartheid practices, that's what the uh, government is targeting, as well as trying to approve uh, all sorts of political corruption that the court has served as a guardrail to. And Hagai Matara, how exactly uh, has the legislation that was just passed weakened uh, uh, the court? Uh, because we've heard the, the uh, gutting or weakening, but we haven't heard much about the concrete uh, legislation that was passed. So I think for context, Israel does not have a constitution, and it is very uh, weak in terms of legislation generally. And a lot of what we see in the fabric of Israeli law and society is based on precedent. And uh, judicial precedent in Israel sometimes relies on this issue of reasonableness. So a good recent example was that uh, Netanyahu wanted to appoint uh, for Minister of Finance, someone who was just recently convicted for the third time for tax evasion, uh, fraud, and theft. Um, and the Supreme Court basically said, this is extremely unreasonable to put someone like that in charge 
of the Ministry of Finance. Uh, so this is a good example, and again, one of the motivations for um, for this initiative. Uh, there are other reasons for the, the government to push forward with this legislation, but I think these examples kind of show what the court has been doing and what the government does not want it to do uh, in terms of uh, gutting it and suppressing its abilities to act and restrain the government's power. And there has been a talk of further so-called reforms uh, that uh, the allies of Netanyahu want to pass. What are those reforms? So it's important to remember that in January, say, said uh, Minister of Justice Yariv Levine announced a whole package uh, of a judicial overhaul. It was a set of quite a few bills that uh, the government committed to pass within two or three months uh, in the winter. The massive protest movement is what forced the government to kind of narrow down to just one bill at a time. It's something that uh, we hear called the salami method, just slicing it to thin little pieces um, of legislation. And this is the first one to pass, but there are many more on the way. Um, some of them are meant to allow Netanyahu to escape his uh, current uh, trial for political corruption. Other measures are meant to allow the government to annex territories and do basically whatever it wants with any kind of supervision from the side of the court. Uh, there are many other pieces of legislation, they all together basically are meant to ensure that the government both can do whatever it wants in this current term and can persecute political rivals and ensure its uh, re-election in the future by disqualifying other political rivals, especially Palestinian citizens uh, who, whose parties might be disqualified if the judicial overhaul comes through. I want to bring Gideon Levy into this conversation also in Tel Aviv. Uh, talk about um, this piece that you wrote about the militaristic nature of these protests. Explain what you mean. I have all the sympathy uh, toward this protest movement, the biggest ever in Israel. And I can just appreciate all those hundreds of thousands of Israelis who are going to the streets regularly, week after week, day after day, spending a lot of time, energy, sweat, and many times even blood in order to express their protest. But I have also some criticize, some critics about this movement. One, you just mentioned, Amy, the fact that they really totally ignore deliberately the occupation and the apartheid. But not less than this, the structure and the combination of people who lead this, this protest and who are really running it. Finally, it is about the old boys from the army. I don't say they are the only one, by all means not, but they are giving the tone. Generals who had the state, and now, as we say in Hebrew, and now all of a sudden the state is being taken from them by the right-wingers, and they go to protest. It is very problematic if figures like heads of the Shabak, of the secret services of Israel, who are quite well known, at least to your viewers, Amy, in its br brutal methods of blackmailing people and, and doing all kinds of anti-democratic actions in the West Bank, including kidnapping people without any a supervision, a legal supervision. So those are the people who speak about democracy, 
Those are part of the leadership of this protest movement. Those are the heroes of this movement. I have a problem with this. You know, generals and head of secret services cannot teach anyone anything about democracy. They should learn it by themselves before they teach others. And uh, could you uh, comment also, uh, as you, you have in some, in some of your writings, about the irony of talking about preserving democracy while both sides in this battle continue to uh, uh, assume and expect that the, uh, the oppression of the Palestinians will continue? You can compare it to uh, South Africa, but that's South Africa. Imagine yourself a struggle among the white community in South Africa about democracy for the white ones. It is a struggle over democracy. And by the way, they had democracy. They had elections. They had quite free press in a way. They had democracy. But it was a democracy only to a very small part of the population of South Africa. The democracy that we are now struggling over is a democracy only for the Jewish citizens of Israel and partially for the Palestinian citizens of Israel. What about five million people who live under the control of the same institutions, who have no civil rights whatsoever, who don't even possess a citizenship of any country in the world? How can you speak about democracy and ignore this? What kind of democracy can exist in an apartheid state? I mean, those things, I understand the desire, the ambition to try to recruit as many people as possible to this protest, which is a just protest. But the way they ignore the real dark side of Israel is for me unacceptable and unbearable. And Haggai Matar, as a conscientious objector, the move of the, what, 10,000 IDF reservists, Israeli Defense Forces reservists, um, uh, to go on this um, uh, strike today, the significance of this and um, their response to what Gideon Levy is saying. So, so I think I, I very much agree with Gideon. Um, obviously, I, I think there, it is very meaningful that this is happening, that people are using this tool that until recently, both conscientious objection and tools like the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign were seen as completely beyond the pale, something that's outside of legitimacy in Israeli politics. And now you have people from the center, the mainstream of Israeli society, using both conscientious objection and calling the international community to use boycott, divestment, and sanctions to save democracy um, in Israel, uh, of course, ignoring the Palestinian struggle, but using these tools that Palestinians have been using for so long. Um, I think, first, it's very impressive that there is such a mobilization uh, of resistance, and it's troubling that people are not aware enough of uh, what they've been missing in terms of the occupation and apartheid, and some of them are actively supporting it. And at the same time, I think what we're seeing is a completely new openness within this protest movement, alongside the militarism, alongside the nationalism, an openness to rethink 
questions of democracy and equality in a meaningful way. We're seeing much more, many more people talking about the occupation of apartheid now than we have for, I would say, almost 20 years. Um, there's a willingness that, that this crisis is creating, uh, which we as journalists are trying to capture on and educate people about what they've been missing and give them the tools to start understanding uh, what the real problems of democracy have been here uh, in, for decades. And Gideon Levy, I wanted to ask you to uh, what degree do you believe that all of this judicial overhaul is a direct result of uh, a prime minister Netanyahu trying to escape uh, uh, his legal troubles and the possibility of going to jail? I wouldn't put everything on this. I mean, Netanyahu is quite a cynical politician, very, very sophisticated and shrewd. But I wouldn't put everything on this. Don't forget that the real engine of this so-called reform or revolution is the Minister of, of Justice. And he is a genuine, ideological, hardcore right-winger. Nothing to do with, with uh, Netanyahu's trial. I think he couldn't care less about the results of this trial. Uh, Mr. Levine has a, a very clear ideology one can only envy how clear his ideology is, unlikely many times the ideology of the Zionist left, which is always vague. He has a very clear ideology and he's trying to implement it. Netanyahu is using it for his own personal purposes, but it cannot be explained. I mean, the whole reform only by the trial of Netanyahu, by all means not. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre called Monday's Knesset vote unfortunate, but reiterated Biden administration's support for Israel. This is what she said. Our commitment to Israel's security is ironclad. And one of the things that you've heard us say uh, before, and I'll, I'll reiterate, the core of that relationship is certainly on democratic values, a shared democratic values and interests, and that will continue to be the case. Um, you know, President Biden has had uh, a friend of, has been a friend of Israel for decades. It is a is a personal relationship, it is a li lifelong uh, friend of Israel, as I mentioned in my statement that came out moments ago. Uh, and we are going to continue to um, uh, continue to engage our Israeli counterparts to try and strengthen that special bond. And that uh, certainly will be um, the, um, the plan going forward. Uh, Gidon, if you can talk about the significance of in the midst of these mass protests, President Biden um, inviting um, and celebrating the Israeli President Herzog at the White House. He gave a joint address uh, to a joint session of Congress. And President Biden spoke with Netanyahu on the phone and invited him to the United States, not clear when or where. Unfortunately, it's time to ask the United States, when will you turn from a hollow talkings and condemnations into deeds? I mean, for how long will this masquerade go on in which the United States is not very happy about all kinds of things that Israel is doing, but does nothing, but nothing to influence Israel to change its way? How long will taxpayers in the United States spend so much money over quite a well-off state whose social needs are very, very low, whose military is one of the strongest and well-equipped in the world, and doing all this without any kind of conditioned uh, terms? 
everything is given to Israel, and Israel can do whatever it wants without really any consideration of what the United States is asking. So one of the two, either the United States is not serious about it, which is my suspicion, or the United States really believes that by talkings and condemnations, Israel will change. This is also very disappointing because after 55 years of occupation, of violating any uh, resolution of the international community, by ignoring American policy toward the Palestinians, Israel continues to do whatever it wants. So if the United States didn't draw the lesson, it means that the United States is very happy about everything that Israel is doing. And the proof is that the United States does nothing to change it, including Obama's regime administration, and now Biden administration, which has, I'm sure, very good intentions. But this is not enough when it comes to Israel. And finally, Haggai Matar, I'd like to ask you, how do you see this crisis uh, potentially developing? What are the, the, the prospects for it being resolved? Do you think that the massive protests will prevent any further uh, overhauls of the court? I think the government is in trouble. It might not seem like that when they pass, you know, a bill of 64 to zero, but um, I do think that they're in trouble. It, they've been limited from doing what they had initially set out uh, to do, which is a full judicial overhaul. They've been uh, basically prevented from doing that. And I think with this latest measure and the responses we're seeing from so many different parts of the Israeli economy and security systems, and and um, the unions are now talking about potentially going on strike, uh, and the demonstrators in the streets. And there's just so much going on that I don't think that what the government is doing is sustainable. They might take a pause now uh, just to kind of reassess. They might try and push forward, and I think they will probably fail. Um, and there's a chance that this government at some point will collapse and be replaced with a new one, very much like the previous one we had, the so-called government of change, um, which will put a stop to this whole judicial reform and move towards uh, full authoritarianism. But at the same time, there's a serious risk that if that happens, there'll be a feeling of vindication, of a victory of democracy, uh, whereas, in fact, Palestinians will continue paying the price under such a, a government as well. Uh, so I think we have to be very, very careful of either the, the scenario of this government continuing to doing what it wants uh, and of the scenario of this government falling and being replaced by another that is better for democracy for Jews, but just as bad for democracy for Palestinians. And we just have 30 seconds, but Gideon Levy, just the news of the last hours that um, uh, Israeli forces killed three Palestinian men in Nablus, 17 Palestinians were also arrested in an overnight raid. Um, how aware is the Israeli population? I mean, we are seeing water cannons. We're seeing um, some of the methods the Israeli government uses uh, in the West Bank applied to the protesters. But only some. I mean, when you see this level of killing of Palestinians just in the past year, um, talk about what is the awareness in Israel and what you think needs to be done about this? Uh, that's, that's maybe the core of the issue, the, the fact that Israeli society is living in total denial. The media is the be best collaborator to supply this denial.
and Israelis don't know anything, don't want to know anything about what's going on half an hour away from their homes. This killing of three Palestinians today is hardly covered, and if it's covered, it's covered in the most minimal way you can cover. I mean, a killing of a dog of the army is covered in bigger bigger ways than killing three Palestinians, at least two of them innocent, as far as I understood. So this daily killing is going on. Israeli society couldn't care less. The occupation is not on the table anymore. And the only way to make it change is when Israelis will have to pay and to be punished for those crimes. As long as this doesn't happen, they can continue to protest against against damage to their own democracy and ignore the fact that they are living in an an apartheid state. Gideon Levy, we want to thank you for being with us, columnist for Haaretz, member of its editorial board, the Israeli newspaper, and Hagai Matar, executive director of 972 Advancement of Citizen Journalism, publishes 972 magazine. When we come back, 19 attorneys general in the United States are demanding access to people's private medical records to evaluate whether someone had an abortion out of their states. We'll go to Kentucky to speak with Planned Parenthood. Stay with us. I've grown tired of being so careful about speaking my truth with soft words out on the streets I'm fearful even though inside I know my worth but I'll never give up even when it hurts because still turning over tables and love still makes the blinded I see there's a healing that's waiting in the water Good Trouble by Lee Nash and Rubia Manfu. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to a shocking development in the rollback of abortion access in the United States. Nineteen Republican attorneys general are demanding the right for local governments and states where abortion is illegal to access the private medical records of patients in order to see if they obtain reproductive health care services, including abortions, out of state. The letter was signed by Daniel Cameron of Kentucky and Todd Rakita of Indiana, among others, and critics say it could intimidate patients from seeking legal health care elsewhere. Abortion is set to be banned in Indiana, with limited exceptions starting August 1st. Meanwhile, more than a year after the reversal of Roe v. Wade, abortion providers report many Kentucky residents are crossing state lines to access abortion care due to the state's near-total abortion ban. To be clear, it's legal for anyone in the United States to access abortion care in a state where that care is legal. That comes after related news out of Tennessee, where the state attorney generals demanded Vanderbilt University Medical Center hand over medical records of patients at its clinic for gender-affirming care, a ban on surgical and non-surgical care that helps people transition toward their self-identified gender took effect in Tennessee. Meanwhile, in Nebraska, the teenager who used abortion pills to terminate her pregnancy was sentenced to 90 days in jail. 
police charged 19-year-old Celeste Burgess and her mother, Jessica, who assisted her in getting the pills and disposing of the fetus after Facebook handed over their private messages to each other. Celeste was 17 when her mother got the pills online. The events took place before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. At the time, abortion in Nebraska was banned after 20 weeks. Earlier this year, Governor Jim Pillen signed a 12-week ban into law. For more on all of this, we go to Louisville, Kentucky. And we're joined by Tamara Weider, Kentucky State Director for Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocates. Welcome to Democracy Now! Why don't you begin with this first story of attorneys generals, uh, Republican attorneys general, uh, demanding um, medical care records of people who have gone to other states for abortion and what exactly is happening in your state of Kentucky, Tamara? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. No, it's really troubling. Daniel Cameron, our attorney general in Kentucky, along with 18 other attorneys general, have demanded that uh, states turn over uh, medical records, and entire medical records, in states where abortion is legal uh, to hostile states. And this is deeply troubling. This goes against HIPAA laws. You know, you, this is your private medical records being turned over to hostile attorneys general. What else are they going to do with this? It's likely that they are going to look for a case to prosecute um, either providers, patients, or those helping uh, people cross state lines to where abortion is legal, uh, seeking care. And uh, Tamara, we, are, are they looking for uh, blanket records, or are they uh, are they uh, wanting the right to to look at individual records that they somehow suspect? somebody may have violated the the uh, abortion bans? You know, that's a good question. Uh, they are asking for medical records from people we believe that are from their state, but they're asking for the entire record. And that is what's deeply troubling. Uh, right now, when somebody does have an abortion, there is a terminated pregnancy report, which gives um, just vital statistics that protects a person's uh, private medical history and identity. That should be enough statistical information for uh, the state to know how many people from, say, Kentucky are getting an abortion. Uh, we know from Indiana's uh, recent reporting on abortion that over 90 percent of their out-of-state care to, for abortion um, in Indiana went to Kentuckians this last year. That should be enough information for Daniel Cameron. And that's, you know, across the country with the terminated pregnancy reports. But they're asking for your entire medical record. And that is going to be scrutinized. Every decision your doctor has made for you over your entire medical history is going to be scrutinized. And that is deeply troubling. And everybody across the country should be concerned and alarmed that, you know, your medical history, your choices, your provider's choices are up for grabs. Has uh, has the attorney general, Daniel Cameron of Kentucky, uh, demanded this information from a Planned Parenthood clinic? Not yet, to my knowledge, um, but that doesn't mean it won't happen uh, in the future. And he is running for governor, so uh, we hope that 
uh, he does not seek that information. You know, right now, uh, no Planned Parenthood in Kentucky, of course, is providing abortion because we are under the ban. And I wanted to ask you about what's happened in Nebraska, this astounding story of Facebook handing over the private communication between a mother and a 17-year-old daughter um, who was seeking an abortion. Um, the mom got abortion pills for her daughter, um, and the daughter took these pills. Uh, now both the mother and daughter—the um, daughter what faces, she's 19 now, 90 days in prison. Yeah. No, it's deeply troubling that, you know, communication that we're having in, you know, times where we don't know what is legal, you know, in our communities around healthcare, if we're just asking questions, if we are seeking out healthcare advice, can be used against us. This information, be it text messages, Facebook messages, um, search histories, should not be turned against us uh, as we are seeking healthcare. And people are scared. They are desperate. They need healthcare. And if you are asking questions, if you are searching for support, they should. this should not be turned against anybody. But this is what happens when healthcare is politicized and it is criminalized. Um, people, you know, become scared and desperate. Um, healthcare should be uh, safe for people to search and and demand, you know, respect from. You know, they should be able to get healthcare from their providers and you know talk to their parents about. They should not be criminalized for seeking support. And to go back to a sec uh, for a second to this request by these Republican attorney generals, you mentioned the HIPAA law. That's a federal law. Uh, should not, any judge just throw this out of court saying that federal law trumps any efforts by local states to access these uh, these records? You know, I hope we'll find relief from the courts, but, you know, the courts have become more politicized, you know, in the last decade, you know. And so there is fear that, you as we go forward in, uh, you know, relief, if they seek uh, judicial um, circum, if they if they seek the courts to, uh, you know, uphold what they are seeking on the on these records, you know, we don't know what circuit they'll go for. Will they go to the judge in Texas, um, Kazmarek? We don't know how the, this will play out. But one thing that I think is really important to focus on is this sets a really chilling precedent. This this scares patients. This scares providers. I think that that is a big you know component of this coordinated attack. It is to set a precedent of fear. If I leave my community, will I be arrested? Will my medical records be released? If I am a provider, will I be subpoenaed and arrested in Kentucky? Should I provide care to out-of-state patients from banned states? I think, you know, what this sets is a precedent of fear that's going to chill care. I wanted to turn to a court in Austin, Texas, last week, which heard testimony from women who were suing to overturn Texas abortion ban, which put their lives in danger when they were unable to end their pregnancies, even when they were nonviable. In a dramatic moment, plaintiff Samantha Cassiano vomited on the stand as she recounted how she was forced to carry out her pregnancy even after receiving a diagnosis of an encephaly, a severe congenital disorder that results in a baby being born without portions of its brain and skull. And this is another plaintiff, Elizabeth Weller. I was sent home to wait for my baby to die or for my infection to start showing physical symptoms, even though they were already there. But I wasn't sick enough to get the care that I needed. 
There is no statement of pro-life in this state when you send me home to wait for my baby to die inside of me and for me to wait for myself to get to a point where I have to gamble my uterus and gamble my life and gamble any future possibility of becoming pregnant. That's not pro-life. In a sense, it's almost pro-torture. That news conference was held by the Center for Reproductive Rights, which brought the lawsuit on behalf of 13 patients and two doctors. Um, if you can uh, tell us, tomorrow what you think the Biden administration should be doing as state after state run by Republicans are cracking down or imposing almost complete abortion bans, what can the federal government do? Yeah, I know that story all too well here in Kentucky. We have so many that are nearly identical as we face the same barriers here. And the federal government, you know, needs to do better by by us. They need to protect protect us, protect Kentuckians, protect Americans seeking abortion care. We shouldn't be fleeing from our homes to access care that we should be able to get at home. You know, and now in Kentucky, you know, we're going to lose our second um, closest uh, state for abortion care next Tuesday. Uh, you know, Indiana's going to go dark for abortion care on August 1st, and 90% of Kentuckians were going to, to Indiana this last year. And so we will have to go further away for care, and it puts more people in jeopardy, especially in emergent needs, where even in medical crisis, we have to leave our state. And so more needs to be done because this is all too familiar a story for so many of us across the country. Tamara Weider, we want to thank you for being with us. Kentucky State Director for Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocates. Next up, we talk to a leading Kurdish-American activist who just walked from Washington, D.C. to the United Nations. Stay with us. Music by the Kurdish musician Yekbun. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show with peace activist Kani Zulam, who's the director of the American Kurdish Information Network. He's just arrived in New York City after a solo 300-mile, 24-day walk from the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., to United Nations headquarters here. Monday marked the 100th anniversary of the partitioning of Kurdistan into four parts—British, Iraq, and French Syria, Turkey, and Iran. All of this was done without the consent of the Kurdish people. They were left without a recognized sovereign state. 
What's happened since has been called a cultural genocide. This comes as the Kurds of Syria face threats from all sides after devastating earthquakes and relentless attacks by the Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and the Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Kani Shulam is joining us here in New York for more. Kani, welcome back to Democracy Now! The latest news of um, globally around Kurds was Sweden, in order to get into NATO, um, making a deal with uh, with the Turkish president Erdogan um, around what should happen to the Kurds there, who he so often calls terrorists, those who fled Turkey and now live in Sweden. Your response. When NATO was conceived, it was supposed to be an alliance for freedom, and Kurds don't have freedom. On top of it, their language is banned. They're subjected to cultural genocide. If NATO wants to reassess its aims, its future aspirations, it needs to address this issue. It cannot cave in to Erdogan and his racist policies that are trying to eradicate the name of the Kurds from the geography of the Middle East. And could you talk a little about the history, especially of this treaty 100 years ago that partitioned uh, the Kurdish people in, into four different states? You know, when the war started, and uh, an imperialist war, when America entered it, at least President Wilson uh, said he wants to make the world safe for democracy. What happened afterwards was anything but to make the world safe for democracy. British, uh, French, France, uh, they joined uh, Turkey and Iran in basically partitioning the land of the Kurds um, through fraud, through force, without the consent of any of the Kurds on the ground. Um, it was a deal done in Lausanne, in the heart of Europe, and we have been living with its effects. In Iraq, we have been gassed. In, Tur in Syria, we have had three different laws applying to our citizenship rights. In Turkey, our very name has been eradicated from the, from the, the land, if you will. Our, our mountains have acquired Turkish names. Our rivers have acquired Turkish names. Our villages have acquired Turkish names. And we have been struggling ever since to have a say. Um, and I walked from Washington, D.C. to United Nations to say that we exist. We have a voice. We have a history. We have a culture. We are no different than our neighbors. And we need to solve this issue through um, a peaceful means, through um, civil discourse. In the heart of the Middle East, we have the presence of the Kurds. It's like, you know, uh, the, the presence of Alps in Europe or the presence of Zagros Mountains in the Middle East. And it's an objective fact. And yet our neighbors are saying that there are no Kurds and they're trying to pretend that the Kurds don't exist. And they're trying to assimilate every single Kurd on the ground as we speak. Connie Shulam, in 1997, you were one of two Americans and four Kurds who fasted for peace in Kurdistan and for the freedom of Kurdish parliamentarians who'd been arrested by Turkey and imprisoned. This is you speaking while fasting on the steps of Capitol Hill. Again, this is Washington, D.C., 1997. 
Today, with some guarded optimism, we can report to you that our fast did have its intended effect on the policymakers in Washington. We also wanted to reach out to the mainstream media. Although the Washington Post and Chicago Tribune did pay some homage to our fast, much of the rest of the mainstream media kept their distance from us. They failed to validate our nonviolent message for peace and freedom. They did a disservice to our people's longing for peace and to their people's longing for the truth. It is unfortunate that Saddam and war sell better than Farda and peace. Frankly, we are not disappointed. We are committed to our cause more than ever before. So that was Connie Shulam in 1997. Uh, Connie, has there been progress made, and what do you think needs to happen now? The progress has been slow. Uh, we are trying to make America Kurdish-friendly, D.C. Kurdish-friendly. I'm reminded of a quote by Dr. King, who said, um, the whites need the blacks to come clean, to get rid of their guilt. The blacks need the whites to heal, to lose their fear. The British, the French, the Turks, the Persians partitioned our homeland. They need to come clean, and they need to um, we they need to reach out to us so that they could live in in conscience in in in, in good faith with their children, and we need them to help us lose our fear and lose our um, hurt, the pain and the the suffering that has been inflicted on us for the last one hundred years since the treaty. And the future is really, we have to respect the Kurds and accept the Kurds. They deserve a seat at the United Nations, too. To pretend that the Kurds don't exist is to pretend that the world is flat. And, and, and Kani Sulam, could you talk about the role of the United States, uh, for instance, uh, during the invasion of Iraq and the Iraq war, the U.S. backed autonomy for the Kurds as a means of uh, achieving its own, uh, uh, the, the White House's own goals in the Middle East, uh, but of course has said nothing about uh, the Kurds uh, in Turkey or in the other uh, Middle East states? You know, in the course of my walk, long walk for freedom across the founding heartland of America, I came across a sign saying um, Americans who had died for the cause of Iraqi freedom. Many died, that's true. But the Kurds really didn't want to have anything to do with the Arab majority in Iraq. They desperately wanted to be on their own. In 2017, they voted to be on their own. And yet, neither the United Nations nor the U.S. honored them, in spite of their support of the Allied effort to topple Saddam. In Syria, 11,000 Kurds have died, together with their Arab comrades, to, to get rid of ISIS threat, not just in the Middle East, but also from Europe and, in the, in, in, and, and the world. The relationship between the United States and the Kurds in Syria is still a military one. The Kurds desperately want that relationship, relationship to be a political one. We need political status. We cannot depend on our neighbors who are bent on, on our destruction. This is a crime against humanity, and it needs to be stated, and, and I appreciate Democracy Now! for allowing me to say this on the air.
Connie Zulam, we want to thank you for being with us. Director of the American Kurdish Information Network has just completed a solo walk from Washington, D.C., uh, to the United Nations. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for paid internships in our archive and development departments. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Jarena Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamaria Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormack. If you want to see transcripts of our shows or video or audio podcasts or sign up for our daily news digest, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman in New York. Juan Gonzalez is in Chicago. Thanks so much for joining us.